All right, well, we are in Acts chapter 22. And the theme I want to draw out, at least at the end of the message, is that baptism is a picture of union with Jesus Christ. As we start out, we've uh, read Acts 22, 1 through 16, and there Paul is addressing uh, a group of Jewish folks. Uh, These Jewish folks were there because, as you can read in the chapter before, uh, they had been told that the Apostle Paul had brought a Gentile into the Jewish temple, which for them was worthy of death. And so a whole big riot broke out, and uh, they finally laid a hold of Paul and started beating up on him. And the, uh, the Roman authorities were alerted to this, and they got together a band of soldiers. The soldiers went down and grabbed Paul out of the midst, sort of rescued him from them, though he was detained and, and put in chains to do so. And as they're taking Paul back up to the Roman fortress, Paul uh, talks to the captain and says, hey, you know, can you give me a second? I want to talk to this crowd. And the, he persuaded the captain to let him do that. So the Roman captain is there, and the crowd is there, and Paul is there. And as the chapter starts out, Paul is addressing this crowd, this crowd of Jews, and he addresses them in a tr- with traditional respect, brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. Now this is a hostile crowd. <clears throat> and Paul is about to speak to a very hostile crowd. I don't know if any of you have ever had that experience, but it's usually not very fun. So Paul addresses them. He said when they heard this, he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, the Hebrew tongue. They became even more quiet. The captain had quieted them down. But when Paul starts to speak to them in terms of the tradition of the Jews, um, the Jews were a tight bunch. They were the, considered themselves to be the people of God, which they were by a unique covenant with God. They had learned that they needed to guard their traditions and things like that. But <clears throat> the crowd had heard the rumors, and they were pretty, pretty bent out of shape. Hey, who is this fellow bringing a Gentile into the temple? It was all hearsay. But Paul presents himself in familiar terms, so they kind of quiet down even more. And we see here how to, how, to, how to witness. When you're talking to folks, you can't talk to them if everything's in an upheaval. So you've got to try to calm things down if that's the situation. And you want to talk to folks on the terms that they understand. I think we're reminded all the time that uh, as Christians, we have Christians speak among ourselves. When we go out into the world, we have to remember they don't talk in Christian terms. For us, because we are submitted to the authority of God and his word, we can reference a biblical verse, and that has clout, or at least it better, it should. It should with every Christian. But when you go out into the world out there, they don't even want to hear about the Bible. That's not their authority. So remember that when we are witnessing in today's generation in America, it's not 50 years ago, 100 years ago. 100 years ago, you could talk about Jesus immediately. Didn't have to talk about God, anything. But these days, you got to bring people up to speed. Hey, there's a true and living God, and there's a lot of discussion around that usually. So if you're going to be a good witness um, in that vein of things, you know, just be familiar with that. Other times you'll just encounter somebody who's just, man, they're just, they're, their life is just uh, really in a bad way, and you can just talk to them about coming to know the living God. God has already done some groundwork for you, uh, humbling them. But this crowd had heard rumors. They're a difficult crowd, and Paul sees it as an opportunity for witness. 
Now, Paul starts out with a brief testimony, a personal testimony. Hey, here's who I am. I'm one of you. I'm a Jew. I was born in Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city, which was a big deal to be brought up in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, that was the, the Mecca of uh, the Jewish world. And so that, that was a significant thing. I, I'm from Jerusalem, where I'm talking to you right now. I got edu- educated under Gamaliel, who was a very uh, well-respected teacher. Strictly according to the law of our fathers. I'm with you. I'm one of you. I'm, I'm according to the law here. I'm not going outside of that law. And I'm zealous for God, just as you are today. Again, here Paul is basically talking to his audience and saying, I'm one of you. I'm sure you want to hear what, I, what I'm going to say. You all want to follow God. And as the famous words of Julius Caesar, lend me your ears. Give them to me. So when, again, when we're witnessing, we're after people's ears. So if you don't get their ears, you really won't be able to talk to them about the Lord. So uh, work at first getting folks' ears. Then Paul starts to turn the conversation. Hey, I persecuted this way. That crowd was familiar with Jesus Christ. That crowd was familiar with Christianity. Now, they had their own version of it, their own distorted view of it, but nevertheless, you could talk to them about what had happened in their very midst. I mean, there was a church there in Jerusalem, and a lot of big things had happened. Uh, Jesus had been there. The church had been there. Um, There was persecution there. So to talk about the way, to talk about Christianity, it was familiar with them. And he starts saying, hey, I, I persecuted this way to the death. I had a bad opinion of Christianity also and of Christians. Binding them and putting both men and women into prison. I was hostile to this gospel. And I was zealous to persecute believers to death. Men and women both. Prisons. And at the bottom, he said, I started off for Damascus. I'm about to tell you a story, but I'm going to tell you where the story starts. I started off for Damascus to bring even those who were there, in Jer- who were there the Christians there, to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. I mean, he was determined uh, uh, that he was going to eradicate Christianity. And so he said, hey, this is who I was. I'm going to tell you the story of what I used to be. And so remember that when you're, you're giving witness... You know, a lot of times you're not going to convince people with logic and things like that, but you can sort of convince them with your own testimony. They really can't argue with that. I mean, they could maybe dismiss it or something. But your testimony about how you came to Jesus, what you used to be and what you now are, what he's made you, the hope you didn't have and the hope you now have, these are the things that you bring in your witness. And so here's Paul. He's just, you know, giving his testimony. He's not expounding, you know, Psalm 2 or Psalm 110. He's saying, here's what happened to me. Then he goes on to say that the story I'm about to tell you is verified. Paul appeals to evidence. He appeals to an authority that his audience will be familiar with and will acknowledge. And again, when we're talking to folks, remember, they have an authority that they assume. And you either have to try to get them to take on a new authority, you know, truth in the terms of God's revelation, both general and special in the Bible. Um, but you, you've got you've to talk them or start with them on the things they know and then move them along. But so here's Paul. Here's an authority his audience will receive and recognize. The Council of Jewish Elders, when Paul was there persecuting Jews, they were fully aware of Paul's personal mission of eradication. They knew that. And he said, to this very day, you can go and talk to the high priest and the elders, and they will verify that what I'm telling you is true. 
And Paul then has his Damascus Road story, and he says, From them I also receive letters to the brethren. This Damascus Road story that I'm about to tell you, it's documented. I got documentation. I was handed letters to the Jews at Damascus giving me authority and telling them to assist me in my eradication project. And I just think it's really interesting, all the testimony that's here, all the verification. And Paul brings it all together. This, this happened, and there's real evidence. And that's the thing about Christianity. Today, the sophisticated op- opponents of Christianity, the, the atheists, the, the scientists that think that all this world is is what you can touch or what you can uh, examine through physics equations and experiments, they work hard at telling us that we don't have any evidence for Christianity. And that's not true. That's not true at all. So that's a whole set of messages in themselves, but just remember that we have evidence to bring. The very thing they examine, God's creation, is 100% evidence of who God is. They just don't want to hear it. But bring that evidence anyway. It is God put it there. He put a whole universe there. He put bazillions of galaxies, not just bazillions of stars, but bazillions of galaxies of bazillions of stars out there for you to use in your witness to people. Where did all this really come from? They have all their fancy explanations, but in the end, their explanations go nowhere. I know I listen to them all the time, by the way. I, I watch physics programs where physicists get together and debate each other, and they lose me about a third of the way through. Uh, but still, it's quite clear that um, they, really, they really don't have any material evidence of anything. They just have their own opinions. The evidence is there. People need to see it. And here is Paul giving this evidence. Paul's story is credible and verifiable history. The book of Acts is credible, verifiable history. The gospels are credible, verifiable history. They're not fables, they are objective reality. Either God is or isn't, and here we have historic testimony from legitimate eyewitnesses that God is true, and he's revealed himself to them. And you, as a Christian, stand in this generation to say that God is true, that you know him whom you believe, and that is your corroboration, that the stars are God's stars, and they bear witness to everybody. Now, Paul says, but it happened as I was on my way. Now he's really starting to get into the story. This is a historically verifiable narrative here. What I'm telling you can be verified. There are witnesses that I was doing these things. But it happened as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime. Again, this is is a history. He's giving you some details, so it's not something he made up. He's, uh, He's telling you what was going on. It was about noontime that a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. He was probably maybe even seeing Damascus. I don't know. I don't have a picture of where he might be, but maybe Damascus was there in the distance. It's like, you know, if you're riding from Greenville to Columbia. I used to do it every day uh, to go to work there for about a year and a half. And there were these markers when you started getting close to Columbia. You know, everything else was woods until then. You're going, yeah. I'm getting close because there's this thing and then there's this thing and there's more of them and there's more of them than eventually you can see Columbia. So Paul's approaching Damascus and he's probably thinking, okay, I'm going to get there and get all this dust off of me, have a nice meal, and then I'm going to get on with killing Christians. 
and a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. Now, in today's world, this would be mocked, but back in the first century, it would not be. Jews knew that God was sovereign. Jews knew that God could appear anywhere. So this was not a surprise to them that a miracle occurred, that God intervened in what we would call a miraculous way. And so, you know, his audience isn't distressed by this. They're probably saying, okay, he's saying he had an experience of God. We can read plenty of them in the Old Testament. But a bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. So get the picture. It's noonday in the middle of what we would consider probably a desert situation. It's already about as bright as you can get. But a brighter light from heaven shines like a big spotlight all around him. And it flashed from heaven. It's like it wasn't there and then it was. It turned on. And so probably some people are on the edge of their seat. Maybe some of the kids are going, wow, what a cool story. Let's hear what, what happened. And he fell to the ground. So there's something that was real. This wasn't a vision. Paul's had in other places he's had visions where People talk to him in a vision, or angels talk to him in a vision, and, and he discerned some things and gave him guidance, which is what their visions were for. They weren't given so that people could bounce around and, and say, hey, I had a vision last night, aren't I cool? It was given to Paul and others to give them direction and guidance in specific situations. But this wasn't a vision. This light shone from heaven. This light made him fall to the ground. We're going to read that this light blinded him. That's not what visions do. But Paul was knocked off his high horse. This is where we get that expression from, if that expression is still used today. I don't know, is it uh, behind the times? You know, get off your high horse. That's where that actually comes from, the the Bible. Right here in Acts 22. And I'm pretty sure that Paul realized he had encountered God because how does he address this voice from heaven? Who are you, Lord? Now, what does Lord mean? It's not, who are you, buddy, interfering with my trip? Who are you to shine light on me? But who are you, Lord? Paul knows that this is an encounter with the living God. And so you start to see that just an example of this is that when God comes to deal with a person, he starts to bring humility into their life. Usually that's putting people into some circumstances that they can't deal with or circumstances that they can no longer endure. Circumstances that they don't have answers to. They've run out of steam in their own life. Their own resources no longer can supply and can provide or can sort things out. People come to the end of themselves. And it brings humility. That's so why as you get older, you get a little bit more humble because life just beats you to death. It's just, just the way life is. Humility. But not only that, the fear of the Lord. It's one thing to have circumstances humble you and maybe cut off some of your sharp edges of self-confidence. It's another thing to come to the place where you recognize that there is a true and living God and you owe your very life and breath and all things to him the fear of the Lord. As Christians, we will always be mocked. Oh, they just go around fear of God. They just want to crutch. All these things are said, but I'm like, I respond with, you have no idea what you're saying. 
Unbelievers have no idea what they're saying when they scoff at the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the greatest gift you could ever get from God because it brings all the other gifts he has to offer. The fear of the Lord. It makes you start to recognize who he is and who you are. That you owe him everything. This word is true. The fear of the Lord. And here is Paul. He had what he would probably call the fear of God. All the Jews were very religious. But Paul, probably for the first time in his life, is really starting to fear God now. I've just been knocked off my horse. And I'm trying to figure out what happened to my eyes. And I'm hearing this voice speaking to me from heaven. He heard a voice saying to me, and I answered, and he said to me, here's this real dialogue going on. Paul is, you know, under this spotlight, like a spotlight on a stage, spotlight on a stage. And Paul's having this dialogue with heaven. Now the people around him saw the light and they heard a noise, but they didn't see Jesus and they didn't understand what was being said. But here is Paul in a real dialogue. And we'll get into this dialogue a little bit later. Right now I just want to finish with the context and then come back to this in a bit. Now Paul's talking to the Jews, remember, in this hostile crowd. And he's saying, those that were with me saw the light, to be sure, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Now you get those who want to mock God. They'll say, oh, we, here we have one of those things in the Bible where the Bible disagrees with itself. Over in Acts 9, it said they heard his voice. Here it says they didn't understand the voice. Well, there's no real difference. They heard a sound, but they, they didn't, it wasn't intelligible to them. It was only intelligible to Paul. There's no problem here. There's no disagreement here in the passage. The Bible's not full of errors. A lot of people are full of themselves and try to establish errors, but the Bible's not full of errors. This message was not for them. And here's something just so sad. Two people could be in this very building this morning sitting next to one another. One of them God is speaking to powerfully. And the other one thinks it's all gibberish. Hearing the same words, being in the same context. But for one person, God is speaking to them. And for the other, God has nothing to say. That is a fearful thing. To be someone for whom and to whom God has nothing to say. That the Bible's all gibberish. The preaching is all just, well, I've got to endure it until it's over. These men saw what was happening. We're standing right next to what was happening, but never participated in what was happening. Now, Paul, here's his response. 
He didn't say, what's going on? He said, what shall I do, Lord? He didn't say, why are you being mean to me? Why are you treating me this way? You've knocked me off my horse, got everything dusty, I can't see, I'm thirsty, I'm tired, I was just expecting a meal in a half an hour, and now you've interrupted my whole life. That's not what he said. God has spoken to him, and he is like, wow. Lord, what do you want me to do? And here's where true Christianity begins. It begins with humility before the living God. It begins with finally submitting to the living God. (coughs) Finally recognizing that God, who gives me life and breath and all things, has the right to do with me what he wants. You know, oftentimes we hear about Job and we we want to read about Job and and, his whole family was killed and all these things happened to him. Disease, lost everything, and we think, well, what is going to help Job? As if, well, Job, if God sits next to him and just comforts him and says, I know, I'm going to give you all this stuff back. But that wasn't what was comforted Job. When you read the last chapter in Job, you discover, to probably your dismay, I know it was to mine, that what comforted Job wasn't a lot of explanations as to what was going on. What comforted Job was he finally got to the place where he recognized that God was sovereign and whatever God did with him, God had a right to do it. That is what comforted Job. So if you're going through hard things in your life, are you still in the place where you're objecting to God that this is happening to you? Or are you with Job, fine, you know, I've heard of you by, with Job saying, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Humble before the Lord. This is where Christianity begins. This is where faith begins. This is where hope begins. This is the non-negotiable permanent orientation of repentance and faith. Lord, what shall I do? Is this your current orientation? When you wake up in the morning, is this basically your alignment? Okay, I got this and that to do, but Lord, what do you want me to do today? What do you want me in the big picture to accomplish? And I'll do whatever it takes. And whatever you have to do to me to mold me and shape me, Lord, do it even though it hurts. Lord, what shall I do? This is Christianity. This is true faith. This is genuine faith. And Lord said to me, get up, go to Damascus, And there you're going to be told all that which has been appointed for you to do. Now this passage we're reading has two separate other accounts in the the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 26. And so we know from those other passages that are parallel passages that Jesus said other things to Paul at this point than what Paul is recording here. Remember, this is Luke recording what Paul said. Luke's own narrative, Luke's own recounting of the story is in chapter 9. That's Luke's version. But here and in chapter 26, Luke is recording how Paul presented it to two different audiences. And so if someone says, oh, well, the accounts don't match, I'm just like, if I was to ask you today what happened yesterday you would give me an account. If tomorrow I was to ask you the same question, do you think you would give me the identical words? 
You wouldn't. You might even tell me some things you didn't tell me today because you remember them or you thought they were significant or, hey, I already told you this, I'm going to tell you some more. You see, when you tell your story, it's your story and you get to tell it your way. You get to selectively put things in and selectively leave things out. That's up to you. And usually people who are good storytellers are doing that because of the audience. This is a Jewish audience. So Paul is going to leave out of this passage the direct references to go to the Gentiles because we find out as soon as he mentions that, they flip out, and that was the end of the, of the conversation with them. So Paul is leaving some things out at this point that we read in another place because his audience needed to be prepared for it. And that's what it is with the Bible. And people, again, say, you know, there's contradictions in the Gospels. I'm like, no, there's not. It's eyewitness testimony. Each of the gospel writers are going to present the gospel their way. It's all true, and it all meshes. It's just some select one thing, some select another. Well, when Jesus gives a parable, a parable that he probably gave, what, 50 times? Which version of the parable are you going to record? Because every time Jesus would tell the story, the parable, I'm betting, you know, he wouldn't tell it exactly the same every time. He would have a different audience, a different circumstance, and maybe even a different purpose. And so when we start demanding of the Bible some kind of exactness that we don't even live up to ourselves, that's a little hypocritical. Paul gets to tell his own story, and he's tailoring his story for his current audience that's in front of him and for his current purpose with that audience. And so we learn just from the differences in the accounts that we could sort of highlight, but we won't, that we're allowed to give a selective presentation of material facts as long as we're telling the truth and summarizing things is legitimate. And that's what you have here. Luke records this conversation three times, or this event three times. He was quite aware of the differences he was recording. But he was a faithful historian and recorded what Paul said, not what he wanted to put in Paul's mouth. Paul is speaking here. And Jesus says to him, you get up, you go to Damascus, and there I'm going to tell you what to do. Now, it's interesting, there's a reason for this. Jesus could have said everything to Paul that he needed to know right there, right? But he said, no. Now I'm going to let you go down and start to find out that you're part of a bigger group of people and you have to depend on that bigger group of people for some things. And God could, you know, just appear like this to every human being he ever really wanted to save and say, hey, here I am, I'm shining from heaven, believe on me, but he doesn't do it that way. He takes a bunch of imperfect people and he makes them preachers of the gospel. He makes them personal eyewitnesses of their own experience of God. And he says, you have to believe them. And this is how God's determined to do it, even when he's picking his apostle Paul. He says, I got some other things to say to you, but you're going to have to get them from, well, Ananias. So Paul includes some more detail because he wants the story to have continuity. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, he's wanting everybody to know how bright this light was. This wasn't the noonday sun. This was way brighter. Because I couldn't see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those that were with me and we came to Damascus. 
A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who came there, he came to me. So again, Paul is saying, hey, I've got some more credible testimony for you. What happened to me, just as my little story that I made up, my little fantasy, my little fable, I've, I've, I've kept the records, I've got the records of the, of the letters I was given to go and kill Christians or grab Christians at Jerusalem to, or Damascus to kill them. But when I got to Damascus, you know, I might have even wondered, did this really happen to me? Except I can't see something happened. That might be the reason he couldn't see. I don't know, sometimes you know that God has spoken to you, but a few weeks later when things get hard, you start wondering, right? God's going to say, there's going to be no wondering here, Paul. The whole rest of your life, you're going to remember what happened to you. The whole rest of your life, you're going to have a hard time seeing as a result of this encounter with me. This happened. It's historical. It's real. And every day you open your eyes, Paul, you're going to remember this day because it's one of the greatest days of your life. But not only that, I'm going to take you down to a man whom you've never met before, whom by all accounts in a natural world should know nothing about you, and you're going to go to him and he's going to tell you some things about what's just happened here, although he wasn't here. He's going to tell you what happened here, and he's going to verify these things. You see, God's witness is testimony. Just coming around. And this man is credible. You Jews that I'm talking to, he's a credible person. He walked according to the law. Everybody recognized that he was a good man. He was an honorable man. He was a respected Jew. And this man came to me. And standing nearby or next to me, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked at him. Again, a cooperation. He couldn't see, and then God healed him partially for God's own purposes. Not fully, but partially. And he could see again. A miracle, another intervention of God. I mean, this story is just full of interventions of God. Again, a confirmation, confirming to Paul that what he had experienced was from God. And in a minute, we're going to look at these words, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Well, Ananias said to him, the God of our fathers has done this, this, and this. Again, we have some things from Ananias here that we don't read in the other accounts. But everything that we read in this one talks about the framework of baptism. The first thing Ananias says is the God of our fathers. Paul, what has happened to you and what God is going to require of you and what you're going to fulfill in the kingdom of God, this is in continuity with the whole entire rest of the history of redemption that has gone before. Remember Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill Jesus' own statement that I came here to be the culmination and fulfillment of all of Old Testament promise and prophecy. We see that same statement here. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the God of our fathers. We're in New Covenant theology territory here. Baptism is a New Covenant theology thing. 
Baptism represents a line of demarcation where a person goes from not participating in the new covenant and the realities that are in Christ to participating in the new covenant and the realities that are in Christ. It's the line you cross. The God of our fathers. The God of our fathers has appointed you. Grace is sovereign. Our place in the body of Christ and the kingdom of God is sovereignly given to us. Now, Paul would not have a problem with the sovereignty of God because the Old Testament's full of it. We only have that problem today because of the debates within, you know, church history. I've never understood that. Like, this was never a problem before until, you know, 1600s. Grace is sovereign. Our place in the Bible and the kingdom of God is sovereign. Pretty sure this doesn't square with today's humanistic standard of equity. You mean everybody doesn't get to be an apostle? Nope. Everybody isn't a Bible teacher? No. You mean Jesus is going to give five talents to one guy and three talents to another and then one to another? You mean he's not going to do it equitably? No. Anybody that tells you that DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, is in the Bible from this humanistic standpoint is just wrong. It's not there. God certainly has his own versions. Diversity, he's the most diverse being in the universe. Mentioned it last week, mention it again. God saves people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, men, women, boys, and girls of every generation. Doesn't get any more diverse than that. He saves people from every walk of life and from every background of sin you can ever imagine. Not that that's a good exercise to do, but he includes everybody in the call to be saved. Anybody and everybody can be saved. Your background doesn't matter. As for equity, everybody gets their sins forgiven, and that's what we're going to see in a minute. But God is sovereign. God deals out things according to his will, and, well, that's the way it is. And Ananias says, God has called you to know his will, and the first will he knows is what? I just got talked to from a being from heaven who is Jesus of Nazareth, which we'll look at in a moment who had to get there by way of a death and a resurrection because he's alive in heaven right now. And, oh, wait a minute, I'm starting to think of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. He, you know, right hand of God material. He's the Messiah. He's the righteous one, as we'll see. He's starting to know God's will, isn't he? He's starting to personally experience that Jesus is just not an idea, that Christianity is just not a philosophy. It's about a person who is in heaven who can save you from your sin. That's not a philosophy. That's a reality. It's a reality that the older you get and the closer to death you get is a very real thing. What am I going to do on the other side of that grave, the other side of that tombstone? Death comes to us all. But you're going to know his will. You're beginning to know it already. And something that's interesting is that everybody in the end is going to know the will of God.
That's kind of part of the new covenant. This is kind of new covenant stuff. All will know me from the least to the greatest. Jeremiah 31. Paul is going to experience his experiencing it in a specific way and in a powerful way because of his calling and place in the kingdom of God. You're going to see the righteous one. Paul is going to see Jesus. He has already seen him. He's going to see him more because Paul is a foundational apostle in the kingdom of God, an unrepeatable place. He had an unrepeatable place in the history of redemption. And that's why all this is happening. And he's going to see the righteous one. This term righteous one is most likely a messianic title. It's used two other places in the New Testament to the Jews. To hear an utterance from his mouth. God has appointed you to know all these things and you're going to continue to know them. Again, to qualify Paul as a an apostle, and to be a witness for him to all men. Now, Paul doesn't say Gentiles yet, but he's edging his way up to it, right? He's trying to say, I don't want to break that on them until the very last moment. I want to get their ears. I want to get their hearts. I want to get them going along with me. And Paul, this is a great story, by the way. So when you're going to tell a story, Paul has squeezed all of the unnecessary information out of it. He's stayed on track. He hasn't gone out into tributaries, little journeys here. He just kept it on track. It's just a, just a great example. But Ananias, speaking to Paul, you're going to be a witness for him to all men. This is a prophecy, really, to Paul. You're going to be a witness for him to all men of what you've seen and heard. And again, Paul will give his personal witness of what he's personally seen and heard, and that's what we must do also. And I always thought this was interesting. Now, why do you delay? I mean, did Paul know about baptism before this, and he was kind of holding off and hesitating? We don't know. But Ananias says, why are you delaying? It's probably a rhetorical device. So get up. Let's get going. Baptism is an urgent item. Why are you delaying? Baptism is an urgent item because salvation is an urgent item. And repentance and faith are urgent items. Why are you delaying? Get up. Make this happen. Get baptized. So we have two people here this morning getting up. They're not delaying and they're getting baptized. Get up and be baptized. Now, over the past 200 years, American Christianity has replaced baptism with the anxious seat, altar calls, and, and all these other devices of modern evangelism. And it's unfortunate. Because the Bible gives us a device for evangelism. When somebody starts responding to the gospel, what do you do? I don't see any evangelism classes here. Every time we read of, in, in the book of Acts of the gospel being preached, the immediate statement is, get baptized. If you want to respond positively to the gospel, if you want to say, I do, to Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to be, I'll save you from your sin, but you've got to repent and believe on me, and you want to say, I do, to that proposition. The New Testament says, get baptized. But we became wiser than God and replaced it with a whole lot of things. Why? Why did we do that? 
I don't know. I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. We should be proclaiming to people that if you're going to respond to God, here's the first thing you do. You go get baptized because that baptism is this great picture of everything embodied in salvation. When folks in Acts ask, what do I have to do to be saved? The immediate response is repent, believe, be baptized. Get up and be baptized. And wash away your sins. Baptism represents salvation in Jesus Christ, and as such, it portrays several core aspects of salvation. Here, Ananias presents forgiveness of sins, that when you get baptized, it is a representation of being, you're having your sins forgiven. This process of immersion, and yes, that's what the word means, and it means nothing else. Baptism or baptize is a transliteration of a Greek word that simply means immerse. has no other meaning. People have attempted to have it have other meanings, but it doesn't. All the attempts fail. It means immerse. It means get put into water and hopefully taken out in time. But that's what it means. If we were to actually translate, not transliterate the New Testament, every time you read baptize, baptized, baptism, read immerse, immersed, immersion, because that's the true translation. But here it's a picture of being cleansed from sins. And this is the absolute foundation for knowing God. We must be reconciled to God through one thing and one thing alone, and that is the blood of the cross of Calvary, the blood of the death of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will reconcile you to God. Good works won't do it. Wishful thinking, well-meaning, well-intentions won't do it. Hopeful that good works will balance out bad works, that will not do it. Taking on some religious practices of in, uh, <clears throat> that are anything except the blood of Christ, they won't accomplish it. There is nothing more basic to Christianity, nothing more foundational to knowing God, nothing more simple, nothing more elementary, nothing more essential, nothing more necessary than having sins washed away, and baptism is a picture of that. But some have said in church history, they've said, well, you know, this activity of baptism, if I go into this water, this trough back here, for when I go into the water, then God's going to save me by my act of being baptized. Baptism confers salvation. It confers grace. And for a long time in the history of the church, this was believed. It was about the only thing that was believed about baptism. There are folks here and there that didn't believe that, but because Roman Catholicism was in the ascendancy culturally, everybody thought, well, you know, baptize babies because it'll save them. It won't. Never has, never will. It's called baptism regeneration. It's maintained by Catholicism, Anglicanism, the Church of Christ, and others. But that's not what we read here. We read here that you are saved by calling on his name. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and his household got the Holy Spirit simply by believing what was preached. And then they were baptized. They were saved and then baptized. In Acts 19, when the fellows hadn't received the Holy Spirit, then Paul says, well, then what to you were you baptized Were you baptized when you believed? Believing was 
the point. There's a whole set of chapters in the book of Romans, specifically 3 through 5, that says you're justified by... The true dynamic of salvation is calling upon the name of the Lord. Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. That last verse says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Now, baptism is an expression of it and a picture of it, but it does not save you. Calling upon the name of the Lord does. Romans chapter 10, 12 through 13 quotes the passage about calling upon the name of the Lord, and it's all about faith. With the heart, a man believes unto righteousness. That's how you get justified, the heart believing. So the actual right or activity of baptism doesn't save you, but it does express your faith in a Savior. God offers the salvation to every sinner in Christ. And every sinner must respond in personal faith and should express that faith in baptism. Do you want to be saved? Baptism is the I do. Baptism does not confer grace. It's our calling on the name of the Lord. It's an expression of our calling on the name of the Lord in repentance and faith. So, well, that's baptism. Just a couple minutes here. Now, Paul had this dialogue with Jesus. Have you ever wondered where Paul first got his doctrine of union with Christ? Some of you are familiar with that teaching in the Bible. Some of you, that might sound strange on your ears. But we read phrases throughout the New Testament letters for sure. We read phrases in Christ or in him referring to Christ or in whom referring to Christ And I just looked up those three phrases themselves, and they are everywhere in the Pauline epistles. They occur 120 times, and that's not all the phrases that account for union with Christ, to be in Christ, to be spiritually placed into Christ, and to be in union, united to him. 120 times in the letters of Paul, 22 times in 1st through 3rd John, which makes sense because both Paul and John are the apostles of union with Christ, only occurs six times in the other letters in the New Testament. So you could truly say Paul is the apostle of union with Christ. Well, where did he first hear about it? I'm in union with Christ. I'm in spiritual union with Christ. Well, hopefully our first response should be, well, Paul maybe heard from the gospel tradition recorded in John 13 through 17. Five chapters. The whole theme is you're in union with Christ. I mean, if you missed that, you kind of missed almost all of John. Spiritual union with Jesus Christ. I in you, you in me. That the love wherewith the Father loves me may be in you. Amazing things. Matthew 25, 40. Lord, when did, when did we, you know, give you <clears throat> water to drink and food to eat and do these good things you say? And he says, as much as you did it unto one of these least of these my brethren, you've done it unto me, union with Christ. And that's what we have here. Here's the place where it's unequivocal. 
This is where Paul got his doctrine of union with Christ from. You see, Jesus emphasized to him. I mean, he didn't, he didn't say very much to Paul. But he starts out of the gate. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Now, is Paul throwing javelins up into heaven? Was he trying to put Jesus in heaven in prison? No, he wasn't. But everybody who believed on Jesus, he was trying to kill. Everybody who believed on Jesus, he was trying to imprison them. Everybody who believed on Jesus, men and women and even boys and girls, he would torture them until they blasphemed or died. He tortured them. That's his own testimony. I tried to force them to blaspheme. How do you think he did that? It wasn't just waterboarding. We're talking about pulling fingernails. He said, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, well, who are you? Why would you ask this of me? Why would you suggest this of me? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. In these few words from the mouth of Jesus, from heaven, Paul is faced with the reality of union with Christ, but right now he's on the wrong side. All these people you've been killing and torturing and trying to force them to recant their faith in me. If you did it to them, you did it to me because they are in union with me. You touch them, you touch me. These people that you've been persecuting, these people you've been imprisoning and torturing, these people have a, such a relationship to me that when you do it to them, you do it to me. I'm Jesus, the one you're really persecuting. Can you imagine what went through Paul's mind? Can you imagine all of a sudden all the faces of all the people in tears and in pain and in agony? in grief and in horror that he joyfully placed on them, thinking he was doing God a service. All those faces start to march across his mind. You did it to me. All of a sudden, those people that he was convinced were check marks on his sheet with God. Yes, God, I've killed 20 Christians this week. I'm doing pretty good. All of a sudden, he sees them as witnesses against him of the wrath of God. Now, sometimes God leads and guides us gently. Sometimes Satan obscures that, and sometimes God comes into our minds and hearts with such power and presses things that it has a depth and a clarity and a certainty that we know for the rest of our lives. And you, some of you have told me your experiences like that. I've had them, you've had them. And this is one of those undeniable, unforgettable, defining moments for Paul. You've persecuted me. You've persecuted me. This is the central defining issue that Jesus brings up. The reality was shattering. Why are you doing it, Paul? 
Paul's question, well, who are you? And Lord, he knows he's God. He knows that no one shines from heaven on their own. Even angels are a reflection of the glory of God. What's happening? My whole concept of God has been rearranged in five seconds here. Who are you? Jesus says, I'm that historical figure that you were there when I was murdered and you were there when my witnesses, Stephen, was murdered. I'm that historical figure of Nazareth, the one who preached and healed and was crucified. And I'm the one who is very obviously risen from the dead, very obviously ascended to heaven, very obviously shining down on you with divine glory at this very moment and very obviously speaking to you as divine. I am that God-man, Jesus the Nazarene. And it's an interesting phrase, the the way Nazarene is in the Greek, it only occurs here because it's probably how Paul referred to him. He takes Paul's own little twist on Jesus of Nazareth and places it here. And as all these faces go before Paul's mind, he has this overwhelming reality that he's still trying to murder the righteous one, the Messiah. Every believer is in union with Christ. Every one of you who believes in Jesus, no matter your personality, no matter where you are in life, no matter what size your bank account is or isn't, you are all as near and dear to Jesus as his own flesh. You are as near to dear to the Father as his own eternal Son. You are loved with the love of God that he has for his Son. Every one of you. Woe to the person who touches you. All are loved, all are valued, all are treasured, all are blessed as the eternal family of God. And this is the foundation of all ministry and mission. And this is what Jesus burned into Paul's heart from the moment he encountered him. Union with me is what this is all about bringing people to be part of the family of God, who that if you touch them, you touch me. That's what this is all about. This is Christianity. It's nothing less than this. It starts from no other place. It's the foundation of all ministry and mission. Go to the nations and gather my family. And if you have to die on the way, then you have to die, because it's worth it. Paul's preaching and teaching and correspondence is filled with union with Christ. It's the first thing he heard from the heavenly Christ. It's ultimately what is symbolized in baptism. As we have an 8-year-old and a 68-year-old getting baptized up here, one starting her life and one confessing to me, whatever life I have left, I want to live for Jesus. This is true of you. 
This is what your baptism is about. You are in union with the Lord of glory. This is what is symbolized in baptism. Yes, it's a washing from sin. Yes, it's a death, burial, and resurrection. But at the bottom of all that, foundational to all that, is this dynamic. You are in him who is true, and you know him who is true. The core of it all, the blessedness of being in union with the Lord. And one other little addendum, what what happened? And you kind of miss this first, Brother Saul, because we use that terminology, but here's Ananias, who had just been talking to the Lord in a vision. Yes, Ananias had this vision. He wasn't going, oh, it's a vision. What do I do? Oh, this is amazing. This is kind of almost like commonplace for Ananias. Lord, I'm going to have a dialogue with you, and I'm going to object to what you're telling me to do because it doesn't make sense. You're telling me to go take this Paul guy who's been killing Christians everywhere, and I'm supposed to go get him and be nice to him, and this guy could kill me. I mean, he's a dangerous fellow. Can you imagine that dialogue? Is that what you'd say to the Lord? Not the first time, but probably the third time the Lord asked you to do something that didn't quite make sense, you'd have enough sense to go, well, Lord, explain this to me, because it's not making sense. But then he comes and he calls Paul, brother. Brother. Paul, you are dripping with the blood of the saints. As you come to me, you have buckets and buckets and buckets of the blood of men and women and children that you've killed. But because of Jesus Christ and his salvation that brings you into union with him, I can now call you and am privileged to call you brother. You see... Every one of us are in union with Christ. That's what makes a church. That's why we don't do church membership. It's not because we're trying to be this or that. It's because it replaces this. It says that your relationship to one another is on a membership role that somebody signed. No, it's not. Absolutely not. Not for a second is that your relationship to another brother or sister in Christ. You are in relationship to Jesus, to everybody else here who's in Christ because you're in Christ yourself. And they're in Christ also. And this is what Ananias understood. So not only does Paul hear from Jesus that Christianity begins with union with Christ, he hears it from Ananias, doesn't he? I mean, the message is like all around him. This is stereo, Paul. Get this. If you're a believer, you're in Christ and you're loved of God now and forever. Every new covenant believer is in union with Christ. That's what the new covenant is all about. People say, well, what is New Covenant theology? I'm like, here it is right here. This is it. Then some will say, well, that's just Christianity. I'm like, yeah, that's what we've been saying. It's just Christianity without all the other additions that church history has thrown on it. We're the people of God. We're the body of Christ. This is the definition of a church. And this is ultimately what baptism represents and points to. This is its destination. So when we see this baptism before us, here are two people saying, I'm going to live for Jesus forever. And I'm in union with him. And I'm your brother, I'm your sister, and you're my brothers and you're my sisters. That's what's happening here. So Jesus Christ and brotherhood and truth, it's not just our motto, it's what defines 
who we are, not just who we are, but who any body of Christ is. Brotherhood in one anothering, that word alleluia, that's the dynamic of the body, our body. So when you're tempted to criticize, to demean, to accuse, to hold an attitude, what does Jesus say? If you do this to me, you're doing it, or if you do this to them, you're doing it to who? Stop. Put, put the clothespins on the lips. Get your heart right with God. We're not each other's judges. We're here to encourage one another, to build one another up, to get one another to heaven, holy and without blame. We're in union with Christ. Is there anything that you can think of that's bigger than that? The God who made the stars of the universe. They're all there for us. One day we're going to find out where that cosmic limit is because we're going to get beyond it because it's all ours because we're Christ's and it's all his. So remember your baptism. Remember your commitment to Jesus. And always remember that every one of us is in union with Christ and we're in union with him together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing thing. That Paul went from having the blood of his saints on his hands to being in union with you, even in union with all those whom he had killed already. He's going to see him one day. I'm sure his heart's going to be broken and he's going to be apologizing left and right. And they'll be forgiven left and right if those transactions even need to happen in heaven. But if they do, they will. Because we're all in union with Christ. And Lord, let us always remember when we see or hear of someone being baptized or think back on our own baptism, we will remember what it represents. Our sins are washed away. We are united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. We do have newness of life in him. And it's all because you have spiritually made us to be in a union with him in a new covenant that's everlasting. That union will never cease, never go away. Nothing will ever break it, neither life nor death, nor principalities or powers or things present or things to come. None of it can ever separate us from the love of God or ever break that union. We thank you for that. And pray that we'll all walk in that confidence and joy and obligation. In Jesus' name, amen.